My name is Robert. So glad to see so many of you guys here tonight. This is the first of our four-week midweek series uh, examining some cultural sort of issues. Um, Tonight is sort of a, it's like a kickoff for the remaining three. And I hope as we go through it, you'll see some of the connections that uh, tonight's topic will have on subsequent weeks. Um, the next three weeks will look like this. We'll talk about sexual ethics. Tyler will be teaching on that next week. And you may be thinking, uh, okay, we're talking about uh, homosexuality, for example, or, or in- issues related to gender identity. No, although those are certainly related to the overarching principles that Tyler will discuss. Rather, we're wanting to examine uh, sexuality from a Christian perspective, in particular, with um, a mind to answer the question uh, that we actually deal with a lot as pastors in this church and just in general thinking about uh, these sort of issues, which is, I'm a Christian, uh, I'm engaged or about to be engaged or just in my heart feel like I'm married to this person, uh, can we live together? And all the things that may come along with that. Um, that's that's a, a relatively, actually, uh, regular sort of thing that comes up, uh, even in the life of a church like, like Crosspoint. And so Tyler's going to examine a more biblical perspective on human sexuality next week. The week after that, we're going to talk about uh, issues related to abortion. Uh, in particular, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, what should Christians do now? What, what actually happened on June 24th? And then what does that mean for Christians now? Uh, what, what, what should our posture be towards this world? Related to that, then, the following week, and, and maybe even more broad than that, though, uh, we're going to think about, um, in general, what is the Christian's and the church's relationship to this world? Um, in terms of being citizens of earthly kingdoms, and yet we know that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Uh, we await a king who is coming, and in the meantime, What's our role in hastening that day? What's our role in being ambassadors of that kingdom? But not only being ambassadors of that kingdom, seeking to see this world more and more reflect that kingdom. What does that look like? Uh, Brad will be teaching on that, and I should have mentioned this, but he'll be teaching on the prior week regarding uh, pro-life post Roe v. Wade. Uh, So tonight we're going to look at something I think maybe more foundational to those three issues, but pretty complex and something that I'm, I'm a little like antsy to, to get to tonight, uh, which is the idea of expressive individualism. And there's a lot of things that are related to that and flow from that, as we'll see tonight. Um, but we're going to think about the spirit of our age, which I think is the foundation for these other issues that we will talk about, which essentially says how I feel about something supersedes any sort of moral claims or absolute truths in the world. Uh, and so I think you maybe, you know, hearing it phrased that way can understand this is a pretty pervasive uh, mentality in our culture, especially here in the United States and in Western culture in general. And so I'm going to delve into some of the related issues there using a really helpful summary from a book that we will talk about here in a second. But before I get into that, I just want to pray and ask the Lord's uh, uh, wisdom for us and kindness to us as we talk about these things. So, um, Father, we, we do thank you for the privilege of gathering, uh, for enjoying fellowship with one another, and thinking deeply about these things. You have called us to be in the world and not of it, uh, but that does mean that we have to have some familiarity with this world in order to serve it well, in order to uh, call it from darkness into light, and to proclaim the one true gospel, the, the only hope of this world, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, so, Father, help us to be thoughtful. I pray that, that the things I'll talk about tonight would, uh, would resonate with people, that, they would, that we would understand and grow because of it, uh, and that you would use it to just deepen our ability as believers to better reflect your kingdom in this world. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all right, I hope you grabbed some notes on your way in, and I hope you didn't look at them. In fact, I hope you don't look at them at all, because they're really not going to make a whole lot of sense. These notes are mainly intended for me, because it just gives me some things to kind of hang a few verbal hats on. But if you look at this and try to make sense of it yourself right now, it'll probably be a little frustrating, maybe even depressing. So don't do that, okay? 
Uh, what I want to talk about, though, tonight is really a summary of something that somebody else has figured out. I am only talking about things that I have read about uh, through a really, really helpful book that I hope you are encouraged to find on Amazon and buy for yourself and read for yourself called uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it is by a Christian theologian and scholar named Carl Truman. Uh, that book is, is this one right here. Uh, it came out about a year ago and was really helpful and influential and continues to have a pretty wide impact among Christians today. Particularly as it concerns uh, just having a, 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 an understanding of the, the history of how we got to a point where this sentence that I'm about to say could be not only uttered, but actually understood by just about anybody. Here's the sentence. I am, this is not me speaking for myself, you understand. I am a woman trapped inside a man's body. How have we as a culture gotten to the point where that statement, whether you agree with it or not, still makes some kind of sense? I think maybe everyone in this room hears that or has heard that before in some way or other. Maybe you read about it in the, the, uh, a magazine about Bruce Jenner, for example, or in any myriad of other places. And whether you agree with it or not, you at least have some idea of what that means. Okay, how have we as a culture gotten to a point where that isn't just total nonsense to us? That's what Carl Truman sets out to answer in his book. Uh, it's, it's a good book. I encourage you to read it, or better yet, to come to a Sunday morning class that we'll be doing here in a few weeks, starting July 31st for five weeks, not on that book, but on the smaller abridgment of it called Strange New World, which I'm holding tantalizingly in front of you now, though it is not available in the resource room just yet, because I want to make sure we have enough copies for those coming to the class, which is also my way of encouraging you to come to that Sunday morning class starting July 31st for five weeks. Um, how, how have we gotten to this, this place? Now, I, I'm going to talk a lot tonight about philosophical concepts, about sort of the history of philosophy. Some of that may be a little frustrating, but we can ground this in Scripture, and that's where I want to start first. And so turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is the account of the fall. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, that's Eve, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's stop there. What, what's going on in this story? Uh, there's so much that theologians over the years have pointed to and, and mined from this really key text in the, this, the history of redemption, not just the story of Genesis. Well, at root here, there is a question that is posed. And the question is this, did God really say? And, and you can parse that out a number of ways from there. You know, it, it, on some level, it's a question of if God has spoken at all. How do you even know that these laws and rules that you're abiding by are in any way divine or, or, or universal? But it's also a question of what God did say. Did God really say this? Hmm. It questions his motives. 
It questions his heart. It questions the nature of his relationship with Adam and Eve. It introduces the idea that maybe God is not being totally truthful or, or fully uh, giving forth his wisdom on something. And of course, Eve's response is also kind of troubling because Eve says, well, okay, he said that we shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden or touch it or we will die. The problem, of, the, of course, is that the Lord didn't tell them they couldn't touch the tree. He merely said that they couldn't eat of it. But Eve already, you see the seed has been sown. She has this questioning in her mind of the truthfulness of what the Lord said, the validity of what the Lord said, the fullness of what the Lord said. Is this everything I need to know? And what happens next is that Eve recognizes the desirability of the fruit. And so now her own stomach, her heart, become the the final determination for what it is that we should do as human beings. We talk about Eve. Of course, Adam is standing right there. And it's worth noting that Adam is the one to whom the Lord said all of these things to begin with. In fact, anything that Eve knows or thinks she knows, she only knows because her husband Adam has told her or not told her or failed to tell her fully. And so this idea of communication, but more broadly than that, the idea of knowing the will of the Lord, knowing the purposes and ends of mankind, what it means to be obedient to God, what it means to be righteous and holy in his eyes, all of this starts to unravel right here in Genesis 3. It all falls apart, and that word desire comes up again and again as a way of reminding us that this is, on some level, the fruit of what Adam and Eve, in fact, wanted being, being more important to them than what God Almighty had said. That's, that's the origin, really, of all the issues. We, you want to talk about how we can get to a point where a man can say, I'm a woman trapped inside a man's body. It does actually begin there. It begins there where we question God's purposes and design. We question his intentions behind even creating us and what the end of mankind is. And it only unravels from there. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, Paul explains this even further, and he gets even more specific into issues that are pretty common uh, in, in our own time. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? By their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. You hear that? The knowledge of good and evil is just right there, claiming to be wise, like Adam and Eve thought eating that fruit would make them become. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, including other human beings, and including our own creaturely desires, fleshly instincts, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's, that's the state of mankind before the Lord. And in some sense, that's really all that this book by Carl Truman is trying to expose. But what's, what's a problem is that for many Christians, we kind of stop there and we look at issues like transgenderism, for example, and we just are satisfied to say, well, that's just a sin problem. And of course, it is a sinful problem. Of course, it is rooted in the fall and in sin. We know this. The problem is that, that that doesn't really get to the heart of the issue, though. And it doesn't really get us a whole lot closer to being able to refute it, to being able to speak winsomely or even intelligently to it. Uh, because we need to understand what undergirds it all. What, how has sin so infiltrated our own mind 
and the culture in which we live that this is just the natural overflow of it. That's what we need to think about. That's what I want us to think about here tonight. So let's think about the big picture then of Western culture. We're going to talk uh, in a little bit, Lord willing, on uh, about the, just the history of philosophy and kind of the, the trajectory of human thought and how these little ideas have built up and built up and built up to the point where we are now. But before we do that, we need to kind of have a sense of the the bigger picture, kind of how the game is played, so to speak, before we start talking about each individual season or World Series or whatever. Does that make sense? So let's think about the big picture. What are kind of the building blocks of Western culture today? And by Western culture, I mean things, uh, uh, people and, and, and civilizations that kind of live with Greek and Roman thought in their rearview mirror, right? So kind of, kind of over against like maybe Eastern cultures that would be rooted in more things like, uh, uh, like Confucianism or Buddhism or, or things related to that. We're thinking more in terms of like the United States, Western Europe, places that, that we are more familiar with just in general, and how that has shaped our understanding of how the world works, what it means to live a good life, that sort of thing. So what's the big picture? What are these building blocks? And I'm going to talk about some philosophical concepts here that, uh, that are in much more detail explained in this book. But I want to give you just some, some handlebars. Think of it that way. as just kind of some handlebars for which to think about these things. The first concept I want to talk about is called the social imaginary. Now, that's not a biblical concept, but it is, I think, a helpful way of, um, of understanding how people think and how, how we relate to one another in how we view the world. Uh, the, the social imaginary is essentially this. Nobody lives in a vacuum by themselves. But rather, we're, we're shaped by the, the society around us. Right? There, there are presuppositions that exist in, in our culture at large that we all just kind of more or less buy into. And it's not even that we necessarily think of buying into it. It's just simply a fact. It's how we think. We, we drive on the right side of the road simply because we do, right? No one has a rational justification for it anymore, though at some point maybe there was one. But at this point in history, we have been so shaped by this idea that it's just kind of part and parcel of how we live, right? So what, what, are, some, what are some maybe ways that this works out? Well, it means that personal intuition about everything is absorbed from the surrounding culture. So how does this relate to the, the idea of like human sexuality, for example? Well, it means that homosexuality or transgenderism or related issues, they didn't just kind of come up out of nowhere. They don't just exist for their own sake. But rather, they're formulated and they come on the heels of, as the fruit of, the accumulation of ideas that societies build up over the years and eventually lead people to say, well, this is a reasonable conclusion. That's how the social imaginary works. Another implication of this is that selfhood, our understanding of ourselves as individuals, what it means to be a self, what it means to say I or me, it's, it's kind of intertwined with the expectations of society at large. I mean, if you think about it, just the way language itself works, Uh, There there really can't be any I, me, apart from us, we. We are selves in relation to other selves, right? And so we're intertwined. It's unavoidable. The things that we value are things that we, on some level, see valued in society at large. The things that we pursue or want to be a part of on some level are valued by others, and this gives us a sense of belonging to the wider culture. And and so all the ideas that we therefore accumulate over the years as a society necessarily have an influence on us as individuals. The things that we individually think are just sort of natural, instinctive Actually, they're, they're part of a bigger narrative that the rest of society around us has been building for centuries. Which means then that this next principle is so embedded in our culture that it's not even something we have to think about. And that principle, and kind of the main idea we're talking about tonight, is expressive individualism. 
expressive individualism. Another way to think of this would be the psychological man. I want you to think about something here, uh, just in terms of, of the history of the human race. You know, there was a point in time where people were truly, literally bound by the land in which they lived, right? Uh, you grew potatoes, not because you wanted to grow potatoes, but because that was the only thing that you could grow. It just, that was it. That was your lot in life. You were born here, and this is what we are able to grow here, and therefore this is what you grow here. And so then your life, too, is going to be shaped by not just growing potatoes, but how the seasons affect your ability to do that, how the soil affects your ability to do that. If there's a famine, your whole world is rocked by this famine because you are very much at the, at the whims of the world that you're born into. But then think of this. Over time, technology changes, right? Uh, maybe even just the, something as simple as irrigation. It allows you to have more control over the world that you've been born into. Uh, think of the ability to travel. Let's leave potatoes behind. Think of the ability to travel. Right? It used to be that a, 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 a carriage ride from Philadelphia to Chicago would have taken, a, a, I don't know, days, at least a day. I don't know. I've never done it. Now it's not even really thinkable. I mean, you can start your day in Philadelphia, fly to Chicago, do a whole host of things, and be back before dinner time. Probably cheaper than the carriage ride or car ride would have taken in the first place. You, you, over time, our ability as people to interact with the world around us means that actually we're more and more capable of shaping the world around us rather than being bound by it. And, and, and that's kind of summed up here in this idea of, of mimetic versus poietic views of the world. A mimetic view of the world says, I am bound by this world. In fact, this world is what gives me meaning. This, this world has intrinsic value and meaning on its own. I can't change it. I have to adapt to it. But a poietic view of the world, which is a world that we live in, says, I, I actually have a lot more power and authority to change the world around me than, uh, than maybe I used to before. And so we can actually construct not just the world around us, but we can also, on some level, think, at least, that we construct the meaning of the world around us. Uh, so, so that something like smallpox no longer means death because we can fight against it with a vaccine. You see how this works. We're given more and more through history freedom and independence as people to shape the world around us rather than allowing the world around us to, be, to shape us instead. Which, which, which contributes to how we think of ourselves, doesn't it? It's going to shape and affect how we as people and as individuals think of the world around us and our relationship to it. So that over time, personal meaning itself, like the, the meaning of my life, the, the things that give me fulfillment, are really found by my own creation and my own determination. Where, where personal meaning is found rather by expressing our own feelings and desires. That is at the root of uh, expressive individualism. That, that the meaning that exists in this world, the, the meaning that exists for me, is really just an overflow of what I want, what I like, what I think is beautiful or noble or right or true or lovely or admirable or any of those things. It becomes something that I can shape. It becomes something that is more intrinsic to me, not the world around me. Uh, just for, for a second here, uh, just think back. I mean, I don't know, a hundred years ago, let's say. For you to ask a person what, you know, let's say you go to a man and you ask him about his job and you say, are you, are you satisfied? Are you, are you happy with your job, with the work that you do? He, he would kind of laugh that off. He would have no real concept, like, what, what are you talking about? It, it provides for my family, if he has one. It, it puts food on my table. It pays for my gas. It gives me a, a shelter to sleep under. I, yeah, I'm satisfied with my job, you know, like anybody would be. But in our day, 
And because of the air of, of, of expressive individualism that we live in and breathe, to ask that question to any of us now would not involve, does it pay the bills? Maybe on some level it would, but even that would really just be an extension of, do you find personal fulfillment in that job? Are you, are you fulfilling your purpose? Is this, is this everything that you thought it would be? Are you finding personal, personal happiness and satisfaction in what you do? You see how that's a, those are different ways of understanding work. They're different ways of, of conceiving the world. That's another example of expressive individualism or the, the psycho, psychological man. Uh, so what one other effect of this is that life is no longer about conforming to culture. We're not bound by the world around us, but rather we, we exist, or, or life is instead about protecting the individual. And, and this shift is really notable in the idea of therapy. There was a time when seeing a therapist meant that he or she was going to help you conform to society around you. Let's, let's fix why you don't fit into to this. Uh, but, but nowadays, that's not really what therapy exists for. It exists to protect you from the world around you, right? Uh, it exists to help you function and feel better, like everything is going to be okay. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong about being reassured about the state of your soul. Uh, pastoral ministry has a lot of elements of that, of, of caring for the individual soul and showing even oftentimes how being opposed to the culture is a good thing. Uh, nevertheless, the, the general state of things is not one of conforming to society or any other external standards, but it's one of being insulated, protected from it for your own well-being or, or sense of wholeness, uh, sense of, of, of self. Uh, it, it turns institutions into uh, really personal stages for people not to conform to those institutions, but rather to express their own individuality. Um, and as we talk about all these things, what I want you to understand is that Christians are not immune to this. This is, this is just simply, it's the air that we breathe. And so, for example, Christians, let's think of one maybe way this works itself out. How, how often is the church that you're a part of not a matter of being discipled into it, but a matter of expressing what you value and like and want to display to the world around you? I mean, I, I think we are all guilty of that at some point or other, Right? But, but that, you see, no one thinks of that as being particularly evil or wrong or insidious or subversive of the gospel. Nevertheless, because of the culture that we live in, we're shaped by these, by the social imaginary of it all. And even something like belonging to the church is really more of a means of expressing something about me, of displaying myself to the world so that institutions like churches or schools or whatsoever, they, they serve the individual's sense of well-being. This also means that, something, that, that, that mere, mere tolerance itself is not enough, that you would just tolerate certain sexual activities, for example. No, 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 that's not enough. You, you actually need to be recognized. Uh, uh, there needs to be a recognition and an, an approval that this is okay. Um, because in, instead of, of allowing society or institutions around us to, to, to say, well, we're okay with it, which implies that on some level it's still not right, uh, we, we individually supersede society at large, and we need society to conform to us, not just by tolerating something, but by recognizing, affirming, validating, approving it. Um, so it's not enough to just tell somebody, man, I'm, I'm not going to bake a cake for your gay wedding. I tolerate that you exist. I can recommend any number of other bakeries that you could go to. But, but rather, because recognition has been withheld, uh, that's, that's the issue. And that's why it becomes such a big deal. Because the baker isn't conforming to the individual but is actually on some level expecting the individual to, to coexist with the differences that the baker represents. Related to this is the concept of dignity. Uh, through, throughout history, there have been different ways of evaluating individuals, not, not to say that they've all been right or good, 
you know, in, in the past, having the most land meant you were the most valuable person. Okay, well, that's, that's not a biblical perspective. <laughs> uh, we've moved as a, as a culture to valuing dignity instead. The, the equal worth of people and, and related to that the worth of everything and anything that they hold dear, everything and anything that they themselves might find as part of their identity. Dignity is a good thing. I think dignity is a biblical concept, but, but embracing everything about a person when it is divorced from any meaning associated with God, that's where the problems arise. When we're asked to dignify things that stand in the face of God, that's, that's where the problem comes in for Christians, and that's where dignity actually goes off the rails. And so expressive individualism fleshes itself out in, in a variety of ways. It primarily looks like holding the, the individual over and against society at large. But the problem with, with expressive individualism, or the, the children of it, rather, is that on some level, people still do want to belong. So, so here's an example of how that works. Uh, you, you maybe, I, I knew these, these kids growing up who considered themselves to be like goths, you know? And, and they, would wear, they would wear black clothes and, and black like lipstick, or they put on mascara and eyeshadow, make themselves look dark and grim and whatever. And it, it was a way of expressing themselves as individuals. It was a way of setting them apart from everybody else. The problem, of course, though, is that by doing that, you're, you're really actually just putting on the uniform of just a, a smaller group of people, right? I mean, all the goth kids look alike. That's why they, you know, they sit together, they eat together, they talk about the same things, they look the same ways, they value the same stuff. So there's this expression of individuality, but it's actually tied into the approval of maybe a smaller group, but a group nonetheless. Uh, this is one of the reasons, though, why, uh, despite self-expression being so individualistic, there are still certain elements of expressing yourself and your own desires that society at large still looks at as taboo. And, and, and for example, um, when, when we talk about human sexuality and all the many ways that that is perverted and, and expressed uh, through our culture, um, you know, pedophilia still doesn't really rank too high on the list of things to approve of, at least, at least for now, right? Why is that? If society values self-expression so much, why don't we value that? Why aren't we okay with that? Well, well, it's because there are things in general that we value as a society still that maybe weigh a little bit more. And so if you compare like the, the, the person who maybe uh, would identify as a pedophile or the person who would identify as like a homosexual, the, the, the homosexual because of the, the just individuality that's being asserted there, the, the rejection of authority that's being asserted there, things that, that society values, but also the victimhood that, that is more readily apparent with the homosexual cause, uh, society can, can value that. Society can get with that. The pedophile, however, still looks like a victimizer, not a victim. And so despite maybe the ways in which he or she may, may still kind of show or demonstrate some sort of cultural values, there's still some values that society at large isn't okay with or, or society at large holds in, in higher regard, like protecting victims that actually render that lifestyle unacceptable, uh, which is why then the, the, the social imaginary that we're talking about, the, the air that we breathe matters a lot. And, and allows for things that maybe we would say, well, this is illogical. You're not following the conclusions all the way to the end. Well, no, it's because there are, there are underlying values at work. Homosexuality isn't valued in and of itself, right? It, it's valued and promoted and championed because of, of the good things that it represents to our culture at large. And, and that's, that's what I want you to, to understand about, about all of this. All right. Some other things that then come into play here. If, if expressing yourself as an individual is really the, the, the pinnacle of what it means to be a human, then what happens is that moral judgments become really nothing but expressions of preference or feelings. 
Uh, of course, that, that argument, which is called emotivism, is very easy to apply to your opponent. Uh, whereas your own understanding of how things work is, is just kind of, this is just natural reason and law. Uh, it, it, it's why for, for many Christians, the idea of being opposed to homosexuality is considered not just to be irrational, but to be bigoted or prejudicial. Uh, the use of the term homophobia, for example, it implies an irrational fear of something that, that if you would just think about it for a minute like I do, you would understand better. And, and so emotivism is oftentimes leveraged uh, against people who uh, disagree with us. And, and I think on some level, too, Christians can oftentimes use that argument against other people as well. Well, you just don't agree with us because you know, you're bigoted or you're, you know, uh, you're intolerant yourself or, or whatever the case may be. But it means that once we, once we divorce human nature and dignity from any sort of moral standards or authority, especially divine authority, it kind of spirals out of control. And we're going to talk more about that here in a second. So um, one more thing just to point out very quickly, is that uh, the, the world that we live in can be described not as a culture, but as an anti-culture. And, and this is what happens when universal principles like morality or the nature of mankind disappear, dissolve. Uh, there, there's a, a philosopher, his name is uh, Philip Reef who has a, a really helpful kind of way of thinking about this, though it's certainly got, you know, it's, its own issues, but just bear with me for a second. He describes culture as existing in really kind of three sorts of phases, three kinds of worlds. And they don't like evolve into the next one or the other, but they can actually coexist at times or loosely coexist. Oftentimes they're at odds with each other, as you'll see. Uh, the first world, the first way of organizing your culture and your values is called the, well, it's the first world. It, it's, it's oriented around uh, maybe like mythology, legend, tradition. This is how we've always done it. This is how our forefathers did it. It's, it's deeply pagan, but it's rooted in something transcendental. It's rooted in something universal that applies to all people. You're born into this. This is how we live. This is what we eat. This is what we value. This is what our men do. This is what our women do. All of those things are kind of filtered through this lens. Uh, so like, like um, uh, I don't know, I mean, you, you could think of uh, like the sort of native, uh, you know, peoples around the world that oftentimes don't have maybe like a personal deity or, or, or sacred sort of entity uh, guiding the world, but, but they're guided by the tradition, the ancestry, uh, that sort of thing. The second world is the world that, that I would imagine most of us live in, uh, which is organized by the sacred. Uh, now, this philosopher is not literally talking about the capital S sacred, like, like God. He's thinking more generally, so you've got to understand that. But, but it's a way of saying, okay, everything that we value and believe as a people is really, it, it all flows from a divine source. Uh, for us, we, we, we look to God Almighty. And we look to his, his, the revelation that he has given us of his word. And therefore, we let those things inform us in what we value and will do and won't do. The third world, however, not to be understood economically or, or something like that. We're talking something totally different than some impoverished nation or, or whatever. We're saying the third kind of cultural way of developing uh, is, is, is one like this. It, it, it's neither pagan nor is it sacred, but rather it, it simply exists on its own. Uh, there, there are no cultural, uh, there's, there's, there is no sacred thing to point back to. There, there's no authority over guiding everything, overseeing everything, including what we believe. But rather, because of the absence of any divine authority or any pagan mythology or what have you, we find meaning, we find cultural value in ourselves and in our own personal moral judgments. The problem with that, I hope you're seeing, is that it, 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 it's pretty unstable. Right, you can't really build much on that. You can't really even reason person to person in that kind of world. Because there's no foundation on which it's built. You're not speaking a common language, even within that third world. But not only that, the third world and the second world, which can coexist together, as many Christians and non-Christians will attest when they butt heads over issues like abortion, for example, we're not speaking the same language. We're coming at the world from completely different perspectives. And it is, as, it is as if we are speaking gibberish to one another. 
for, for a Christian to insist that there's a divine order superseding everything is gibberish to the one who has no concept of that, who has rejected that outright. In the same way that, that that person's concept of doing whatever feels right just simply does not make sense to the Christian who sees everything as having to be subject to the will of God. It doesn't make sense, which is why we are always arguing all the time with people about these things, and we'll probably never find any sort of winsome way of convincing somebody of our side apart from the work of the Lord to open their eyes to the reality of, of him, his truth, and his word. Um, and, and so, uh, the, the modern life that we live in is kind of a blend of this third world and second and, and first and so on. Uh, and, and especially in America, we're running into this all the time, though the third world seems to have really grown in, in prominence. The problem with the third world, though, is that it is unstable uh, and, and, and it focuses so much on, on the here and now, what's imminent, rather than what is transcendent. What it values is, is more therapeutic and pragmatic. Well, what makes you feel good? What, what, what do you like? I mean, as long as it doesn't hurt Tim, you can do whatever you want to do. Ethics in that world, ethics in our world, is really a function of feeling, uh, not, not of, of anything, anything more. And so the, the anti-culture, the third world represents an anti-culture, rather. It's not a culture, but instead it exists to really subvert and destroy whatever culture preceded it. It's not about preservation. It's about the destruction of cultural traditions. It's, for that matter, then anti-historical because, because then, then history, the past, the traditions of how we understand things have come to be uh, is itself maybe even a form of, of oppression. It's a, it's a reflection of a bygone era. It's a reflection of, of an understanding of history that is also bygone. And, and so it, it needs to be undone. And it's reflected in art and in culture in what are called death works, which sounds kind of ominous. Uh, but I think it's a, good, it's a good way to think of it, which is there, there are things that are put forward then in culture, pop culture, high art culture, the whole spectrum, that are meant to be a, a, a crucifixion, as it were, of the previous sacred order. Uh, many of you maybe recall uh, years ago when uh, there was an art uh, display put forward in which a man took a jar, filled it with urine, and then placed inside that jar a crucifix. I won't talk about the name of it, it's pretty crass, but, but this is what he did, and it was considered to be art. The, the reason it is art in the third world, though, is that it turns the sacramental into something excremental, I mean, I mean literally. And, and, and so it is, it is spitting in the face, it is rendering what was once considered to be beautiful hideous. It is taking what was once valuable and turning it into something, not just worthless, but turning it into rubbish, right? Now, that, that's an extreme example, but, but it also happens uh, through things like pornography, where, where sexuality and the sacred order that underlines human sexuality is spat upon and turned into something for the consumer mind, where, where it cheapens human interaction, especially the sacred interaction between a husband and his wife, that the Lord has implemented, it spits on it, flips it upside down, and spits it out the other side. Um, a, a, abortion is, is literally a, a death work in that sense. Spitting on the image of God, literally throwing it out with the trash. But even things as simple as like cynicism, sarcasm, these implicit uh, uh, questioning of, of authority and, and anything in the past that was good, assuming the worst possible motives of our forebears, that's also, in a way, a death work. We're, we're, we're taking what was once valued and, and turning it upside down. Now, all those things then become the, the building blocks of what we're going to talk about here which I think will go much more quickly, which is that the, the, this revolution that has taken place, that has gotten us to where we are, it starts as a revolution of the self, 
It starts as a revolution in terms of how we understand human beings to what, what our nature is, what is the value of a self, of selfhood, and it becomes a revolution of sexuality. Uh, how does that happen? Let me give you three steps towards this, and, and history bears this out. The first step is that you, you, we, as, as just a culture, psychologize the self which is to say that we, we take the self and we divorce it from the wider society and instead we value and look much more inwardly for value and meaning. We psychologize the self. Second, you sexualize psychology. So we're going to look inward, and then when we look inward, what do we find? We find that at the core of what it means to be a human is sexuality. I'm not saying this is true, right? Please understand. I'm saying this is kind of, this is, the, this is the path that history has been on. And then what do we do from there? Sexualizing psychology is one thing. If, if you're just going to kind of turn a blind eye to everybody's sexual preferences, that, that's one thing. But why is it that we now need to know and find it a relevant detail to know the ins and outs of everybody's sexuality? Why do we need to know whether Harry Styles loves men or women? Why do, we, why do we need to know that? It's because we then politicize sexuality. Where sexuality is just part and parcel of what it means to be a human in the context of other humans. And, and it, it is how we ourselves are tethered to one another and, and to government and to the world around us. Everything kind of is, is filtered through this lens. How do we get there? How is this play out. Well, it starts with, or you could, I mean, you could start in Genesis 3, right? But, but for the sake of time and for the sake of this book, you know, he, we want to begin with maybe something a little more recent. And, and you can look at the influence of a philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but also of, of a period of art, arts, poetry, literature, uh, visuals called Romanticism, where, where selfhood became focused on the inner life became focused on an individual's worth apart from society, over against society. As you read these works, these poems, these, as you look at the art that was developed in that time, you can, you can see how the individual self, how he or she is feeling, what he or she desires, really starts to take precedence over what society around them values. It means, though, that society actually holds back human authenticity, and not just society in general, but the society as it was known then, which was very much shaped by Christian sexual codes. And so to, to be an authentic individual in some ways actually meant rebelling against the sexual codes that were just a part of life, the assumption of society at that time, which were very much influenced by uh, Christian doctrine. What this means, too, though, is that aesthetics, how things appear, how things make you feel, how things sound or look, starts to determine what is ethical. And so you would ask Rousseau, well, then why would anybody do something good? And he would say, well, simply because empathy feels good to a person. He's, he's actually assuming on some level that there is a universal human nature that's rooted in the desire not to see another person like you suffer. And so that's what motivates good and motivates goodwill towards other people. But you see, it's, it's rooted in how you feel. It's rooted in what seems good to you, not in any sort of moral absolute or standard. In other words, if you can shape the taste of the world, if you can, if you can shape how, what, what tastes good to people, then you can shape what is true to them as well. Uh, and that, man, I mean, that, that has some pretty broad applications even to today, right? If you can make something palatable through movies or music or art or books or what have you, if you can make it seem harmless or, or seem even to, to work and fit in with whatever it is that you want to see, then, then you, can, you can actually convince people of some pretty crazy things. Nietzsche and Marx, uh, to crazy guys. Okay, they, they uh, then took this, though. They, they kind of picked, they took the ball and they ran with it. And they said, okay, yes, yeah, society, it holds back 
the authentic self and the expressions of authenticity and of individuality. And, and, and the history of society, therefore, is really the history of power and oppression. And so concepts like human nature, which are not real, are made up by those with power to keep those who are weaker at bay, to make sure they obey, to make sure they do what they're told, to make sure they fall in line with the social order and status quo. And this was really made just so perfectly clear. Um, well, not that concept necessarily, but, um, but, but this was really put forward that there is no real human nature by Charles Darwin, who found a, a perfectly cogent to him and to many around him reason for why humans exist, which is that there is no reason. There is no purpose behind mankind's existence. And so Nietzsche took that and said, you know what? Um, if there's no purpose behind man's existence, then there's really no, there's no grounds for morality at all. And in fact, he looked at the philosophers who came before him in the Enlightenment who had so turned aside from God and started to really worship at the altar of reason, literally. He says, you know what, guys? What you've really done is just kind of, you've actually kind of killed God or any authority that the idea of God even has. And if God is dead, let's just take it the whole way. You guys aren't taking this far enough. If God is dead, then there's really nothing upholding our sense of morality but, but our own personal taste. Or maybe we're just being manipulated by those who are stronger uh, into making us adhere to whatever it is that they value that keeps them in power. Or in the case of, of Marx, not individual people, but whole classes of people. And so this whole move of history was highly focused on the here and now, whether in the form of personal satisfaction of just getting whatever you want, like Nietzsche would have said, or in, in the form of, um, of, of, of our relationship with society, the world around us. Marx, as, as Marx put forward, for Marx, though, what this means is that there's really no sphere of human life that isn't on some level political. There's no element of what it means to be a human being that isn't on some level tied to other people, to, to the, the work that we do, to the production that is in the world around us. And so then, uh, he kind of lays the groundwork for some things that come later. Finally, or second, you, you need to sexualize psychology. We've psychologized the self. We're looking inward, but now when we look inward, we need to see that the, the real core, the essence of what it means to be human is sexual desire. And that's where Sigmund Freud comes in. Now, Freud had some crazy ideas that even, even the, the most unchristian, anti-Christian philosophers have opposed and debunked. The problem with Freud, though, is that it didn't really matter whether he was debunked or not. By the time his ideas took root in society, they were there to stay. They became part of the social imaginary and the way people have thought virtually ever since. His, his idea, his thought was that humans are sexual beings at their core from infancy. And that society and culture seeks to curb this, or to direct this in some ways, but also that society and culture is kind of the result of trade-offs between the sexual anarchy that would occur if everybody just did what pleased them and the need that we all have to kind of get along and live, right? He's like, look, we're all sexual beings is what he says. But if everybody just did what pleased them, then we, there would be no everybody anymore. And so we all realize this and, and have some trade-offs here, and that we call society, uh, his, his understanding of this, you can imagine, was pretty powerful, though. Uh, and, and so what made it even more powerful, though, was the fact that here was a psychologist, a scientist, a man of reason and, and rationale, a man of learning, and he applied the language of science to essentially justify hedonism. And it made it respectable. It made it palatable. And people, especially in the West, kind of ran with it. And so once we started to look inward and we started to see that inward, the basic identity of human beings is that they are, in fact, sexual. The, the deepest desires of a person are sexual. 
This is Freud's point, and this is truly the point of the world that we're living in, isn't it? Uh, once, once you see that or believe that and embrace that, then the next step is to politicize sexuality. And so a, a philosopher named Reich, I can't remember his first name, he took Freud and his understanding that everything's about sexuality, and he, he took Marx and his understanding that, that history is really just the story of how people kind of live together and work together and are shaped by the world around them. He, he, he took all of this, and he said, you know, at, at the core of it all, uh, society, is a, it, it seeks to oppress people, and, and that oppression is fundamentally psychological, but that psychology is sexual. And so then, then the result is that society uses sexual codes, and rules and laws to, to keep people at bay and to keep people more or less functioning in line so that sexual freedom then became political freedom. If you had sexual freedom, if society itself uh, embodied sexual freedom, then, then that also equated to political freedom. And, and this political freedom then comes about when humans are defined by their sexual desires. Sex, in other words, became the, the answer to human ills. Your problem is that you're being repressed, you're being held down, you're not able to express your true authentic self uh, and so sex became kind of the, the stand-in for really all of life's problems. So to be free in, in the truest sense of the word meant that you also needed to be sexually liberated. And you could therefore only be happy when you were affirmed in that sexual liberty that you then felt. So, where has this left us? There, there are different things that have triumphed because of this and really transformed Western culture. There's the triumph of the erotic, the pornographic even. Uh, and, and these things have come forward not as like alternatives, not as a widening of the door of what's acceptable, but actually as a means of abolishing what came before. So we, we live in the third world, a world, a culture shaped by a third world mentality that sees sacred order and universal principles and truth as something to be spat upon. And so then the erotic and pornographic, they come forward not as things valuable in and of themselves, but as means of, of putting your finger in the eye of what came before, especially the sexual codes that were uh, put forward by uh, Christianity uh, at least in the case of the West. It's not an expansion. It, it is an abolition of those things. The triumph of the therapeutic. Uh, we won't get into it, but I mean, even the, even the rationale of Supreme Court decisions regarding things like, like gay marriage, they're not, it's not really rooted in, you can read it, it's, it's not rooted in anything like legal. There, there's, there's not, I mean, there are precedents there that are put forward, but they're really kind of window dressing for the real rationale, which is very much oriented around the, the personal well-being and satisfaction of those who are homosexual or identify as such and, and want to have the joys and privileges of marriage. It's, it's about a, a feeling. It's about, to, I mean, not to you know, put it too lightly, it's, it's about self-esteem. That's the rationale that even the Supreme Court put forward. It's the rationale behind abortion in many cases. What, what would be for, for the mother's well-being and sense of, of personal fulfillment? All right, the, the, the therapeutic, is it's, this, this rationale is all around us in so many ways. The personal well-being. It's, it's true even of protests on college campuses and, and uh and angst about things like free speech, freedom of speech, where even, even freedom of speech is, is now widely, by many, considered to be a form of oppression and, and attack. We're talking about words. Uh, we're talking about what for so long has been like a hallmark of, of liberalism, that people would be able to share ideas and, and the best idea would win. 
even now, sharing ideas that, that are seen as an attack on someone's identity are, are now truly the same as a, as a personal, physical assault on that person. Um, there, there, there's so much more that could be said. Finally, the, the triumph of the, the T in LGBTQ, really the triumph of the T and the Q. Um, I won't get into to much of that, except to say simply that there is real, there's really no reason why transgenderism and what is considered to be queerness should logically fit in with uh, fighting for the rights of, of gay men or lesbians. Because in, in the world of, of the homosexual man or the lesbian, their gender is, is male or female. That's kind of how those things are defined. But transgenderism and queerness really fly in the face of that and reject any sort of gender binary whatsoever. And yet LG goes with BTQ in our minds and in the way the whole month of June has trumpeted. Why is that? At, at fundamental levels, they disagree. Well, it's because they're not rooted so much in, in transgenderism or homosexuality as such. It's because they're rooted in really a sexual iconoclasm in general. That if, if we can just tear down sexual norms altogether, then we, we kind of all win, even though fundamentally we disagree about some major things. And so this sexual iconoclasm is really just a symptom that was even woven into history as back as, as Rousseau and these other men that we've, we've talked about. All right, what's the church's place in all of this? I know we're over time, but I want to finish here with some uh, idea of what, what we can do. Ephesians 4, chapter 4. Turn there with me, starting in verse 4. This is, what, this is what the Word of God says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the uh, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into, into Christ, <clears throat> from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The, the, the gospel points us away from individualism, and it, it points us to a community of believers, not oriented around themselves or, uh, or even a minority cultures, just fringe values. No, our, the, the church is oriented around the transcendent word of God. It's oriented around the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ. We are informed not by our own inward understanding of things. In fact, we acknowledge that to be informed by the flesh is to be opposed to the spirit of God. But God, by his grace, he has given us his Holy Spirit by faith that we might walk in accordance with his law, with his standard, and that we ourselves might find belonging with one another. That's why the local church is so important, and that's why it's really one of the last bastions. Actually, it is the last bastion of gospel witness in this world. In fact, it maybe was the only bastion of gospel witness in this world. The, the scriptures call the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is where we stand. So what does this mean? I think it means for us that, that Christians need to be willing to self-examine. Are we ourselves preoccupied with this notion of the therapeutic, of what feels good for us, of what's good for our own well-being? How often do we use language like self-care, for example? 
This is not to, to stick a finger in anybody's eye. It's just to say this is the air we breathe, and we may be unwittingly abiding by laws and principles that are actually now kind of carried out in ways that we are absolutely opposed to. So we need to be careful as we, as we think about these things, about even the language that we use, uh, the, the ways that we speak. Um, do we as Christians or just as individuals, uh, as a church maybe, or as individuals think of sexual fil- fulfillment as some sort of personal right that is just a part of what it means to be human? I mean, I, I, we've, we've seen as a church numerous cases where we've had to put out of our fellowship men and women who valued their own sexual fulfillment over and against the word of God. Let's not pretend that this is something outside among the, the, you know, the societal riffraff in our minds. Uh, this is something we have to combat. It's something that we have to fight against. And how do we do that? By, by adhering to robust doctrine, especially concerning what it means to be made in the image of God the nature of humanity in that sense. We, we need a good theology of, of the body. We're body and soul. Uh, we're not just spiritual, thoughtful people of faith, but we're also people of, of action, of, of bodies. The Lord has given us bodies which inform our identity, not just how we feel, but the body that he's given us, even down to the level of communicating to us whether we are male or female. We need a doctrine of human sexuality. We need to cultivate that. We don't need to shy away from that in Scripture, but actually run to that and look for that and encourage one another in in these things. We need to recover a sense of community that is ordered around God's order and his word. That's that's why it's so important to be part of a church, to be part of a a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching local church where you can actually live out the truths of God's word in the context of the people of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you for, um, for just the, the, the truth that you have spoken to us and you have revealed yourself to us and you call us to abide in you. Lord, help us to do that. We, we are students of this world in ways that we might not care to admit. Lord, would you woo us from this world and and draw us near to yourself that we might walk with you in faithfulness and encourage one another to do the same and also then hold a mirror up to this world, not to shame it, but to point it to the hope of the gospel, Uh, to, to point out the weakness and frailty and destruction of the flesh and the life and redemption that comes by the Spirit. Lord, I ask that you would do that in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.